For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Galatia was not a city, not even one town. Galatia was a territory. It was overrun by the Romans in the year 25 before the Common Era, and Paul arrived there about 75 years later. He went from small town to small town in the whole territory of Galatia, telling these pagan, heathen Gentiles that the one true God, Israel's God, had so loved the world that he had sent his son Jesus, so that anyone and everyone could see how great the love of God for those whom he has created really is. There were many who believed. Paul moved on to found other churches. And then word came to him that some people had been following him around, saying to these Gentile Christians, Paul forgot to tell you one important thing. Before you can be a Christian the way Paul is, you have to be a Jew the way Paul was first a Jew. Really, what does that mean? Well, it means you can't buy food from the market that's been offered up to these pagan heathen gods. Blood sacrifices, nicely roasted and barbecued, you cannot eat because they've been offered up to pagan gods. Oh, and by the way, all of you men will have to be circumcised. Well, that succeeded in splitting the church. In every community, every time they gathered, now the question was, do we have to do that? Paul didn't say we have to do that. Well, I'm not about to let them do that to me. Do we have to do that? And Paul writes to them, and he is really unhappy. He is angry. I studied this letter four and a half months as I was in seminary in the Greek language. And I remember our professor, Dr. James Robinson, coming right to the end of that four and a half months and saying, Paul was so angry, the words just pouring from his mouth and his pen. 3,000 words divided for us into six chapters, and all of it could be summed up in two sentences. I hope you can figure out what they are before final exam, he said. I found them. I know. I have them. These are the two sentences. I tell you in Christ Jesus... Circumcision no longer matters, nor does uncircumcision, but a new creation. The other verse, in Jesus Christ, circumcision no longer matters, nor does uncircumcision, but faith that works through love. Four things. Number one, circumcision no longer matters religiously, spiritually, does not matter because this represents our doing something to ourselves or letting somebody else do something to us that will help us stand right with God and what Paul is trying to tell the churches of Galatia is everything necessary for your standing right with God 
God has already done. John Sherrill's in his 80s now. He had a mild heart attack, if that's not an oxymoron. He was frightened, he said, so he listened very carefully to everything his doctor told him he was supposed to do. Change his eating habits. More importantly, more exercise. His doctor told him which cardio program he needed to be a part of. And John said, I was frightened enough that I went to every session, day after day, for a while. And then I did really well, and I wasn't so frightened anymore, so I quit going. And then he said, my wife and I took one of those cruises where they just offer food to you day and night, day and night. And I came back overweight, so I was really embarrassed now to go back to my group, so I didn't. And days became weeks, and weeks became several months. And then late one afternoon, he said, I was in the grocery store. Just as I was about to get my groceries checked out, there was the young trainer from the health club. And he said, Mr. Sherrill, we've been missing you. And John said, well, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, things came up. I've been busy. I had a lot to do. And the young man said, I expected you to do what most people do, and that's to ask, what's the most important exercise? Will walking suffice? Do you need to go a little faster, a jog perhaps? Do you need a treadmill? Do you need an elliptical machine? Do you need a Stairmaster? And I always tell them the most important exercise is the next one you're willing to do. The most important exercise is the next one you're willing to do. That's what we're taught in America, isn't it? And that's important in many areas of our lives. So it's difficult for us when we hear somebody like Paul say, guess what? There is nothing you can do and nothing anyone else can do to you or for you that God has not already done. Everything necessary for your well-being in relationship to God, God has already taken care of. Number two, uncircumcision no longer matters. Now think about this word. When this letter arrives in Galatia, and it's taken from town to town and read in the houses where faithful people gather, the first thing these grown Turks are going to do is jump straight up, click their heels and say, Paul said we don't have to! Let them get at us with their sharpened knives. We don't have to. And I'm afraid that's the rallying cry of more Methodists that I know. We don't have to. It's been 29 years ago this month that John Russell was elected a bishop of the church. And two weeks later, I got a call from the Oklahoma bishop, Paul Milhouse, asking me if I would come and be your pastor. I'd never seen this church. I'd heard of it, of course. I'd never seen it. I knew none of you. My bishop had told me he was going to nominate me for this great church, but he said there would probably be 50, 100 nominees. Who knows? But if this old bishop calls you, he's an old German evangelical United Brethren bishop who became a United Methodist bishop when we joined them in 1968. Uh, he's sort of strong-willed. Don't ask him how much they pay. It'll turn him off. Don't ask whether they have a house or not. It'll turn him off. If you want to go, just say, yes, sir, I'm coming. And lo and behold, two weeks later, we'd gotten this call. And so I said, yes, sir, 
I will do that. And he said, well, let me get this perfectly clear. The church is giving parties and receptions for the Russells, and that's appropriate. Uh, Dr. Russell has to go to Lake Junaluska to learn how to be a bishop before he moves to Dallas to be one. I don't want you in the Russell's way. I'm going to give you a moving date, and if I hear that you have crossed the Red River before that moving date, I will nullify this appointment. Is that clear? I told him I understood. So we had a month to think about you before we ever saw you. And Gail and I remember well when we put three little children in two cars and drove more than 500 miles from Beaumont, Texas to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the first time. We got her after dark, stopped at a service station, and asked the attendant if he could direct us to Boston Avenue Methodist Church. He said he thought it was that big one down on Boston Avenue. <laughs> I said, I don't know where Boston Avenue is. And so he gave us a little more instruction, and we found the church. It was late Thursday in August. Nothing was happening here. Every door was locked. We couldn't get in. That was our first experience with Boston Avenue. I discovered in the next couple of weeks, of course, I needed to meet with the Budget Committee and the Pastor Prayers Relations Committee and the Nominations Committee. We needed 843 people that we would name for leadership roles in our church for the next year. And I knew zero people. The pastor in United Methodist Church is the chair of that committee. I needed 843 names and I knew none. And so I met with the committee and we talked and prayed and prayed and talked and talked and prayed and met again and talked and prayed and prayed and talked and finally had 843 names. And that was my job to notify the 843 of you we had chosen you. And I could imagine about 800 of you saying, Well, you know, we have a new place up on Grand Lake. Uh, we have a really nice place on Fort Gibson Lake. We have a really nice place down at Tin Killer or Keystone or some other place. And Paul said, We don't have to. And so I wrote to you and said, The committee and I have prayed long and hard about this, and we felt led by God to name you to this important position. I want you to pray about this. And unless you feel God telling you to go in a different direction, we'll count on you. One fellow called me. I'd not met him yet. He said, this is not a fair letter. This is not a fair letter. How can I call you and say, I asked God if he wanted me to teach third grade boys, and he said, no, I don't want you to do that. Go on to the lake. It'll be all right. Okay. Paul says this antinomianism, which comes from a little word nomos, which is translated law. It really is referring to the Torah. This idea that you mean if we don't have to be circumcised for religious purposes and we don't have to eat kosher for religious purposes, we don't have to do anything. And Paul said, wrong. You missed it. You didn't hear what I was saying. Number three. Third, let me tell you what really matters, a new creation. Last fall, one Saturday morning, Gail and I went to see one of Trey's boys play football. And we got into the little bleachers there and had just sat down when a woman in front turned around to me and said, Dr. Biggs, what did you think about the shack? 
I thought maybe this was a new restaurant. And I said, uh, haven't eaten at the shack yet. She said, no, the shack is a book. You haven't read the shack? I hadn't even heard of the shack. I said, uh, no, sorry. Well, when you read it, I want to know what you think. And I said, okay, I'll be sure to let you know. Didn't know who she was. And I said, I'll be sure to let you know. Well, we went on with the football game, and I didn't think much more about it. But uh, every three or four weeks, one of you would say, what would you think about the shack? Well, I haven't read that yet. And then one of our prospective families came up to me one Sunday and said, we're bringing the author of this book to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, here are a couple of tickets if you'd like to come and hear the interview and see if he can help you better understand the shack. What did you think about it? And I said, I haven't read it. Well, here's a copy. And they handed it to me. So I read it. Uh, really phenomenal that a religious book has sold more than six million copies. William Paul Young wrote the book. He's the son of missionaries who felt God leading them to New Guinea, who were spending their lives away from the people they loved most in the world because they felt God had led them. And one day while his mother and father were doing the serious work they were doing as missionaries, they had left young Paul in the care of a trusted friend who sexually abused him. And so all these years he's carried these horrible memories. He said, my childhood was taken from me. And he decided to write a book called The Shack about the death of a little girl named Missy. Of a grieving family over whom the great sadness has come. He keeps calling it the great sadness. And how three and a half years after Missy's death, the father, who's not really a, a person of faith, gets a little note in the mail that invites him to come to the shack where investigators had found the bloody dress of this little girl, never had found her body, found the dress. They were sure she was dead. Come back to the shack three and a half years later. He decided to go. And when he got there, he met God. She was a very large African-American woman. Mr. Young was asked, why a large African-American woman? He said, the person who hurt me was a man. I didn't want God to be a man. I thought maybe God could be a loving woman. The Holy Spirit is a little Asian woman, small, caring, loving. But there is a key line in there where wisdom is speaking with Mac, the father. And Mac says, I would like to be a person of faith, but I don't know where to begin. And the Holy Spirit wisdom says to him, it's returning, returning. And I knew right away, Mr. Young knows that the Hebrew word for repentance is not just about being sorry, it's about being turned. Being turned and sent in a different and better direction. Being turned and sent back to God. Come back to God. And Mac asks, so what do I need to be doing? And the Holy Spirit says, just practice being loved. That's it. That's the new creation. One that suddenly understands, trusts that it is so, that the one who flung the stars into the heavens knows your name, cares what's happening to you, wants only good to come to you, grieves with you when bad things happen to you. Do you trust that that is so? 
and it's supposed to make a difference in the way you eat breakfast. Number four, this faith, this trust then works through love. Agape is the word. It's not eros, physical attraction. It's not even philios, friend to friend. It's agape. It's a willingness, a will of the mind to do the good for another, to put oneself out for the well-being of another. Elizabeth Sherrill has written now in her 80s about her faith journey. She didn't grow up in the church. Her family never went to church. When she married John, John's father was a seminary professor, but he was rebelling against all that, no longer going to church, so the two of them didn't go. And then when finally a baby was born, John felt that tug. We need to get our baby in Sunday school. And so when they started taking the baby to Sunday school, Elizabeth and John came to a deeper faith. Elizabeth, a new faith. But she wrote that in her early 40s, she began to understand more what agape was about. Remember the Cold War? Cuban Missile Crisis. I was in college when that happened. The Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, it was a horrible time. And she said she and John, journalists, were given opportunity to go with a man named Brother Andrew across through Checkpoint Charlie into East Germany. They wanted very much to go. They met him in a hotel, and he invited them up to his room, said, we're just about ready to go. He was packing a very large new suitcase with all kinds of clothes. He was clipping the labels, the price tags out of all these clothes, sweaters and shirts and jackets, windbreakers, new underwear, so on. And John finally said to him, I, I don't know why you're carrying so many clothes. This is only supposed to be for four days, right? And he said, oh, sure. But I won't bring any of these back. I'm taking these to Christian people in East Germany who have not had a new coat, a new sweater, a new shirt, new underwear for years. I will leave all of these for them. I'll bring back my few dirty things in a, in a satchel just to get me through Checkpoint, Charlie. I'll leave them all. And Elizabeth said, I shouldn't have said it, but I looked at him and said, Well, you could stand a new sweater yourself. And he said, You're right. And one of these days I'll buy me one. But I can assure you it will not bring me as much joy as buying one for one of them. 